Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Today I'm in the Boyne Valley, not far from the Louth border, just inside County Heath, and we're here uh, to see the fascinating excavations at Bowbeck. It's actually the last day of the dig, so I feel a little bit guilty. I know the last day of any excavation could be um, surprising. Stuff turns up always, the weather always turns against you. But it's not too bad a day, a few showers earlier, and this looks like an absolutely killer site. So we're going to talk to the crew, we're going to talk to um, the landowners here, and we're going to get a bit of a sense of what the project is and why it's happening. I'm joined by the co-directors, Geraldine and Matthew Stout. And Geraldine, we might start with yourself. What okay. exactly is Bobek? And what did you expect or hope to find here yeah. at the outset of yeah. the project? Well, that we knew that this was a medieval farm established by a small community of French monks from De Bella Becco in Normandy. And we knew from the historical references that Walter de Lacy gave the home or the mother house, De Bella Becco, lands in Baymore and also nearby Mornington. Okay. And so they, they, were, they came here to establish, we believe to be a farm and a grange. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly interested in the way the Cistercians managed their lands, the way they divide them up into granges and then work them with lay brothers. Okay. So what, we, what I hoped to find here was a grange. Yeah. And um, we did, we did find a grange because the first thing we found was, you know, evidence for um, medieval cultivation here in the form of a uh, ridge and furrow yes. with, with full of grain. And we found um, the remains of a rect uh, rectangular moated site in here that would have defined the grange. Okay. And then we found uh, the, a residential block and um, a great stone barn, the great stone barn of Bowbeck. Beautiful. That's yeah. really interesting. And Matthew, just turning to you for a moment, if you could give us a little bit of the historical context of the site. Um, how was it that the Cistercians came to be here? Well, the, the, Anglo, the, the Cistercians were in Ireland, of course, before the Anglo-Normans arrived. But when the Anglo-Normans came, they, they took on that project uh, of establishing monasteries and they were particularly fond of the Cistercians. The Cistercians were great for the economy. If they, if they established a monastery, they would farm the hell out of it and develop it and ship goods back and forth. Uh, uh, they, they were, once, once you established a Cistercian monastery, you were, you were uh, starting a whole new uh, woolen industry, woolen trade, and so they, the Normans took them on just as uh, they were taken on before the Normans arrived. But this place here seems to have been a particular pet project of the de Lacy's, because okay. obviously the Lacy's are coming from Normandy, yeah. Uh, they're, they're probably speaking medieval French, their, their links are very close, they probably still have land there and we don't know what, why precisely the, the, the de Lacy's don't come from de Bellabeco but not that far away either okay. and this, this, this uh, Jerry mentioned the date of 1205 which is the confirmation mm -hmm. of the grant so it might have been something that Hugh de Lacy himself did from the very beginning okay. and, and one of the things that um, 
they achieved by establishing these church properties is it, it acted as a buffer zone for the town. The town of Drada is entirely surrounded by church land, and that takes it that that removes it from pri private ownership and private interest, yes. and kind of protects it, and they protected Drada that way as well as as other towns. And I suppose Drada was a hugely important medieval port. Oh, was, Drada was, was why this was such a successful well, venture. Yes and no, I think, uh, if I can say that, because Drada is hugely important, and it's a project of the Lacys, and it's built, it's, it's a greenfield site. Uh, they established the port there. Uh, that's 1185, isn't it? But the other, other side of it is, is that these monks owned the land to, to Mornington, so they actually, and they owned some of Drada's, some land own, in Drada as well. They developed the key in Drada. Yeah, but they didn't. I always think it's important that they owned and they could go straight to France okay. through Mornington. Okay. So they, in one way, they were kind of free of I, what I regard as the um, corrupting influence of the town. Because we, we think the evidence from the excavation shows these guys were a bit more observant than, some of the, than for example, the monastery we dug in Bective. Well, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because as you said, you know, the, the Cistercians were already here in Ireland. There wasn't Melifont, which isn't too far yeah. away from that's us. Right. That was the very first Cistercian monastery. It's 1142, uh, is that right? That's yes. right, yeah. 1142. Uh, and was there any kind of records of any interactions between the Cistercians here and those uh, older Cistercian foundations in, a, in the region? I think we have two references, haven't we? Oh, two uh, priors of Bobek. Um, becoming an abbot of, of Bective Abbey. Oh, that's and that. also... Um, that's Stephen of Lexington, who did a... Oh, yeah. Stephen of Lexington did a tour. Uh, he was a very important uh, Cistercian. He was also English. He didn't have a very good time here. He thought the mm. Irish Cistercians were all very corrupt. Yes. But he yeah. points out that two of the of the abbots here were appointed the head of... One was appointed the head of Bective, and one was pointed the head of Melophant. Okay. And which is, again, adding to our idea that these guys might have been goody two-shoes. <laughs> as opposed, yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed okay. to, because this was, this was small and yeah. French. Yes. And, okay. it wasn't, yeah. and it wasn't like the big operation that Melophant and Bective became. Yes. So that, that's, yeah. and, I, and I think the archaeology, well, we're yeah. hoping that Fiona Beglane will establish yeah. that, one but I think the, the yeah, archaeology one, shows One that. of the interesting insights, just little insights into why they're, they're more French and more strict observance than, than Bective. In Bective Abbey, we found huge amounts of animal bones on the site. You, okay. you know, and you know the other way, the Sturgeons weren't supposed to be eating the meat of four-footed animals. Uh, okay. So, but we got, they were, they enjoyed their beef, I can tell you yeah. that much. <laughs> but here on this site, very few animal bones. That's very and they're kind of small animal bones. Yeah. Whereas, you know, lots of evidence for vegetables and for uh, seafood okay. on the site. So that little insight into their very French. Yeah, very a little bit of a culture clash. <laughs> yes, almost. there is. Yeah. And, uh, to go back to the uh, the original foundation, and you say it's the De Lacy family. Of course, mm. they're the, the powerful magnate came over, Hugh De Lacy being the first, and set up at Trim Castle. Yeah. Um, was part, apart from the economic factor uh was that kind of part of the thing of this early phase of the normans coming to ireland that they had suddenly huge land mm. that they needed to manage so it was good to get an organization in well, to do so yeah well i just think the church was would have been you know automatically loyal to the de Lacy's. Okay. you know as you as you as like we always talk about like, this buffer of loyalty around drada yeah. because yeah. all the church lands are circling drada yeah. the, the and once once the land passed into the church 
it stayed with the church. They yeah. they didn't buy and trade land; it, it, they kept it. And there's also the angle. I mean, we can't we can't. I always think sometimes you can't take religion out of religious history. These guys were Christians, yes. and they did do a lot of bad things around the place. And they yeah. uh, they did support these monasteries out of a, out of a sense of uh, religious duty. That was an important part of it as well. Yeah, the economics of salvation, you know, because yes. they always say in the charters it's all about, you know, for the salvation of their souls. Yes, absolutely. So, it's good to hedge your bets, I yeah, suppose. Exactly, that's it, that's it, you know, exactly. Well, like, as you say, uh, Matthew, you know, they were obviously a religious order and so on, but they were also uh, beings of flesh as well as spirit. Yeah. So how did a monastery like this kind of operate? How did uh, foundation kind of manage the lands? What kind of things did we do? I think we have to yeah. establish, first of all, that there was never a monastery here. Okay. And that's what makes it, afraid to use the word unique, but I think that makes it unique. They had, they, they had just the land. It was just exploiting the land here. Okay. And they had a presence. They, they were, there were monks here, mm -hmm. but proper monastery, no. It was okay. only ever just a farm. A grange. Okay. A grange. It was a grange. Because one of the things I've been particularly interested in over the years is looking at how the Cistercians in Ireland uh, manage their land. And I've been looking at, you know, say, Foyle Abbey and Bective. Mm -hmm. And they basically, they divided the land into lots. And then they sent lay brethren out to work it. Mm. And what I'm finding on these granges is that you're getting a kind of a, 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 a repeated morphology, if you like. You're getting the large enclosure. And then in the historical documents, you're getting reference to a courtyard of buildings on the periphery of that in, in our enclosure. Right. Uh, you know, with the with the buildings all being laid out in a certain pattern. Very interesting you know, indeed. And, yeah. and what sort of things were they farming here. I know we're going to yes, look at some of the environmental... Yeah. No, we're, we're very much... Um, cereals or grains seem to be very prominent here. Certainly like in the floor of the barn, um, Penny has taken over 100 samples wow. and she's finding rich deposits of, of bread wheat oats and barley and then we've got from last year we have uh, wonderful examples of their fruit gardens and their trees and orchards because wow. we've got strawberries and raspberries and uh, plums and cherries so you have to feel that there's gardens all around here and uh, figs then and grapes from that were probably imported. I was going to say even without the archaeology uh, Tim O'Neill in his book has a lot of there are ref, there are historical references to the the goods being taken out of this yeah, this yeah. site and being moved to France. There's a very good reference to um, sacks of wool and sheepskins being brought from here through Bristol to Normandy to the mother house okay. for the clothing of the monks in Normandy. Very good. Yeah, so that is a very good reference. Yeah. The, and if I may ask you, if I may ask, mm -hmm. a sack is not just like your sack from a super, supermarket. Yeah, a, a sack is very. A sack yeah. of wool is a huge quantity of wool. Oh, we actually had that on the blog last year. What is that equal to? I can't remember. You have to. We'll give you the link. The point yeah. about it is that this is uh, this is in industrial scale farming. This is the best land yeah. in the world. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And they're growing stuff and they're uh, uh, raising sheep and it's all being shipped to France. That's very interesting. Yeah. So they almost kind of industrialised oh, farming on a scale that yeah. hadn't been seen yeah. previously in but Ireland. That's the think? thing I think yeah. with with yeah. with the granges that like they consolidate the lands. Industrial scale yeah. uh, production. Well, Gerline yeah. believes, and on the basis of Bective, I suppose it's fair. I think it's fair enough that the some of the great innovations that are associated with the Anglo-Normans were actually brought in by the Cistercians. Yeah. They were the ones that I, probably that, developed the three-field system 
and brought it here first before the Normans. They might have had the adv advanced ploughing technology before the Normans. They and and before the Normans arrived, as I said before, they also developed the wool industry. Okay. So this, a lot of this, a lot, this assertions are very important from the from the agricultural point of view, and of course that's yes. why. Uh, Jeremy's been interested in this since you, since Father Colum Kill talked to her about um, the the, um, the when I was of in, when I was a student in Nauth, which is about forty years ago. Um, I we had a George Ogan used to bring people to Townley Hall to give Sorry, talks. It's closer to fifty, but closer yeah. to fifty. <laughs> And he used to bring, he'd always bring people in to give us talks. Yeah. So yeah. Tara Colum Kill, who was the great Cistercian historian, yeah. he came to us and he started talking about uh, granges and, you know, he, he created this picture of brothers working, monks working in the fields mm. and agriculture. And I came from kind of an agricultural background, so I could really get it. Yeah. So, but I remember telling him I'd do something on granges, so about 40 years later I started working on them. Very good. Yeah. And, and what was the origins of this particular project? Because yeah. you well, were yeah, excavating well, up at Pective in yeah. previous years. Yeah, right? that, yeah. Well, um, John, I've known John McCullen for years and John has been, you know, I was on a committee with him and John has been telling me about, you know, Bobek and how this was a monastic site. And as I, I started to investigate it, and I realised that this was quite an exceptional site and that it was an alien farm worked from Normandy. So as part of my Cistercian research, I, I thought it would be a very good case study mm. to see what happens when you've got a community coming from France and working in the land. So as kind of a case study, I was excited by this. But I had no idea that we would produce so much. I had no idea that uh, this, I'd get my barn, finally get our great stone barn <laughs> yeah. and the residential block. I suppose we couldn't have been absolutely certain it was medieval until last year when we got all the medieval pottery in the latrine. Okay. And before that, the, you know, if any field in County Meath has medieval pottery in it, yes. it's just it's yeah. just what you find. Mm -hmm. But that deposit of medieval oh. pottery in the in the abandoned latrine from from around 1350 just that makes it absolutely clear. And uh, I think we were very skeptical when we started. Because uh, there was always the suspicion that the the beautiful uh, sand, red sandstone window that is still here in the gable was inserted later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like ornamental. Yeah. Feature. Exactly. Yeah. A, a yeah. piece okay. from a, a piece of from the from the church somewhere brought to this building, which could have been anything, eighteenth yeah. century, seventeenth century, anything. Yeah. Because this was not a well-known site. There's yes. nobody. No. Most people in Drogheda didn't know where this site was. Yes. No archaeologists ever talked about it. Donald yeah. Murphy. Did a uh, did a bit of an excavation in the in the 1980s. I think give give uh, John McCullen his due. He paid his own money to bring a professional archaeologist here, Donald Murphy, to do a, a, a trial excavation, wow. and he found a section of wall, and he found medieval pottery, and that was you know that there was a very short term excavation, but that was his. He did that yeah. for his, with his own money. To, just for his own curiosity. Yeah, this yeah. is just exceptional, this site. The, the columns yeah. are very exceptional, and themselves are exceptional. Yeah, yes. they just have a total buy-in on this site. You That's know, the whole family. We've got all the children and the family working on the site. And like, you know, I don't know, all that good, those good vibes, you know. Yes. Hey, this, you know. So we actually, in four weeks, we have a, like a national monument here. We found a national monument. It's amazing. Yeah. It, you know, it really a, is a massive medieval building. And of course, it was John that got us our funding from um, FBD Trust. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. There's a, a, tr a trust belonging to the FBD Insurance that is interested in the history of agriculture and, and, okay. and mm. rural life in general. And, they, and so that's how we got the funding to do the work.
That's fantastic. Yeah, and John wanted to the, this be to be a model for farmers because farmers all over Ireland have these bits of walls on yes, the side, and right. like to, yeah. to see this huge potential because this was started off as one little building, but now we have a we think we have a, the remains of a prehistoric tomb. We have a late near pit circle. We have the medieval barn, and then we have a wonderful, um, huge amount of information on the 18th century mansion, the Pearson Mansion. It's incredible the amount of history in a very small area, isn't it? And it's just, I always find it kind of comical in a way that anytime somebody puts a spade in the ground in the Boyne Valley, they trip over yeah. <laughs> large-scale Neolithic yeah. monuments, it's, you know. It's yeah, like every site has a time depth, doesn't it? It really? does, yeah. it does, yeah. it, it's incredible. Our pit, our pit circle was good, to get, the, to get such yes. a good date for it and everything. Yeah, it's remarkable stuff, it really is. And I suppose... Looking ahead, you know, what what's the future for now? Because today is the last day yeah. and I do feel incredibly guilty. You no, <laughs> no, okay. no we're delighted. Everything, everything is under control. Yeah. Like we've been working, we have um, yeah. Katrina Devan and her her assistants have been processing all the fines. They're, uh, they're processed up to date on yeah. a computer register by feature number. Um, they're all bagged away. Now they're boxed. So we have a box ready to give to our pottery person. We have a box ready to give to our metalwork Not person. Boxes, yeah. We have boxes to give to Fiona Beglane and Sligo. Yeah. And um, once we get a bit of a holiday out of this, um, we will start writing this up and we will, ha we will be able to tell the story of the monks of Bobek by the end of next year. People will know about the, about the whole story of Bobek. Hey, I'm joined now by Aidan Giblin, McMongie and Anthony Neville, is that right? Neville. Sorry, Anthony Neville. Neville. Um, and you're all part of the Resurrecting Monuments group and you, you've crossed county boundaries here, haven't you? Normally kind of North Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, we, traditionally we're, we're based in Baldoyle in, in, in North Dublin and uh, we've worked very closely with Christine Baker in Fingal. Yes. Uh, we've taken part in the uh, Braymore Castle and Swords Castle and most recently the Dramana uh, excavations. Um, and we, uh, we transferred to County Mead um, uh, two, last year um, to uh, do a bit of work with uh, Geraldine and Matthew on, on the excavation here. Um, so it's been it's been a great experience and what has the excavation been like I mean you, you've you've worked through one of the sunniest periods I think I've had in my <laughs> since I've moved to Ireland how's it been as a dig um it's been a great dig um I suppose the weather has helped in the sense of you know last year we were here season one and uh, it's quite heavy rain by times where this year with the heat uh, we are to get much more work done now. Our problems following through the stratigraphy and that, uh, on some of the dry days, is quite hard. Yeah. Um, but plenty of water breaks, and uh, the stouts are very good for the tea breaks as well. <laughs> yes, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it seems like a lovely atmosphere, uh, Anthony. And like in terms of the actual uh, discoveries that you've been making, just as I arrived today, you found a lovely big piece of pottery. What other kind of things have you been finding? Well, um, it, it, it's very exciting for me because I've been working on the, the drain mm -hmm. uh, for the last four weeks and uh, I've been the, the butt of, of Matthew's uh, uh, contempt because it was a famine. I was finding nothing and he kept expecting me to find medieval pottery and so on. I was finding nothing in the drain. I kept explaining to him it was an enclosed drain. How would you, the pottery get in there in the first place but uh, on the last day 
you know, I found this huge bone, which uh, I carefully took out, and then underneath it, I, I found this beautiful piece of pottery. So that's, that's very exciting. Now, earlier, about a week ago, I did find uh, a nice uh, Neolithic flint, and uh, we found a, a, a coin, a 1370 uh, Edward III coin. So, you know, we, we've had some exciting coins associated with the drain. But I mean, in terms of the site itself, it's been fantastic. And the opportunity to uh, excavate, uh, you know, uh, a, a monastic uh, barn, uh, it's, it's just fantastic, absolutely. No, that's it. And it's one of the things I, I'm incredibly impressed by on this site, not only is it, you know, very visually, it's a beautiful site with lovely stone walls and so on, but the, there's such a range of specialists on hand, on site as well, and how is that experience going kind to? Of um, well, it, it, it's been it's been interesting. While we've all come along as um, uh, amateur archaeologists uh, with varying degrees of knowledge, um, uh, many of us have kind of uh, professional backgrounds, and um, uh, my background is geography, and you kind of bring that um, interest and that um, specialism to the site, and you you kind of have a look and uh, while the Cistercians were particularly interested in drainage and water management systems. Um, I found that very interesting because you kind of have a look at the landscape, have a look at the lie of the land, where the drains were, and it was great to be able to interact with John McCullen and use his local knowledge attached to the kind of map evidence um, to, to have a look at the way uh, in, in, in which the water could be managed in a, a relatively low-lying site with not very much slope. Well, that's it. I mean, it's something I think a lot of people, in thinking of archaeology, they don't tend to think about the, the practicalities, the engineering, that all of that had to be done, otherwise there wouldn't have been a building here in the first place, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. So yeah. it's really interesting to look at the site through that lens. And I suppose at this stage, you're veterans, you know, you've worked on South Castle, you've worked on a number yeah, of other sites. I go back even further. I've, I started there with Finn O'Carroll down the Black Ferrari oh, God, um, right. back in 2010 um, on the field school there. But in terms of what the experience of working on an archaeology site, um, what is it that keeps kind of keeps you coming back is it the process of discovery is it the practice of archaeology or is it the company um, I suppose it's a it's a mixture of all but um, over the years I've always had an interest um, I mean Aidan and Mick have kind of professional experience relevant experience I haven't from that point of view but um, you know going on holidays I'm always looking for the the cathedral or the old church or the you know the archaeological site and so on mm. so I've always been interested in doing that on the holidays and dragging the poor unfortunate kids had to be dragged uh, many years ago but um, so you know and going to places like France and going to Karnak and that kind of thing yeah. uh, and but I was introduced what I suppose by a work colleague um, in Newgrange particularly because he was big into Newgrange and, and we went there and uh, in the early days of, of Nouth in fact when they only started and it was all locked off we, we'd have to confess we climbed over the fences and, and got in to have a look but uh, when I retired particularly um, you know it was an opportunity then to do things I'd never done before and you know through resurrecting monuments being introduced to the, the possibility of uh, excavation yes um, and then of course we had our own two ex excavations uh, in Dulux and Tower Hill and so on yeah. and this is my uh, 11th or 12th uh, excavation it's between Swords Castle and Romana and Braymore and, and, and here and so on you know
That's fantastic. And and what, in terms of you know all the excavations that you've worked on recently, what will you take from? What's your memories? Key memories of this one, of Bobek, going to be in? Um, that you start off with one thing in mind, and you're looking for uh, a medieval grange and what what that looks like. And um, we excavated the moat um, uh, last year, um, and that gave us a, an insight into the kind of material that the buildings were made of: the floor tiles, the ridge tiles, the slates, etc., um, the, the pottery. Um, but this site, um, uh, as we've excavated other aspects of it, particularly uh, the finding of stone axes, Neolithic material, so that while we're in the Boyne Valley, uh, it's not surprising that uh, that aspect of the site, which was kind of unexpected, um, uh, has emerged. Um, the interaction of um, uh, grey-haired people like us um, <laughs> with the younger um, students, uh, with the local people, um, again, has been a, a great experience. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, it, that, I think, is the essence of the community archaeology, um, that you're taking lots of people with lots of different backgrounds. You have the, the local school teacher um, and and, and, and they all bring a, a, an aspect to it. You have the international aspect um, w with people coming from abroad to, to lend their expertise as well. That's there's a lovely, I mean, you mentioned company to me there earlier. I mean, th that's a great aspect too. Mm. Uh, you know, you come along and immediately I'm saying, oh gosh, I remember you from Dramana and yeah. oh, weren't you in Source Castle, you know? Mm, yeah. and, and why is I remember you from the Knoll, you know, yeah. all the different people. And there's a great family atmosphere. So I'm joined now by Bea McCullen. Um, Bea, you've worked here for the last three seasons now, uh, is that right? Yes, Neil, I have, um, and it's been great fun, and I've learned so much about archaeology and history. And I didn't know that much about this before, but um, they've uncovered so many wonderful hidden secrets, and it's great to see it all come together. I mean, it must be really interesting for you, because you would have known this building a long time before any archaeology happened here. What kind of... Did it ever kind of register in your imagination? Did you ever think about that building and what it might be or how old it might be or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, like, I wouldn't have known that much about it, but um, I don't think even, like, when I was younger, I wouldn't have known it was medieval or anything. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's very fascinating to see just everything, like, laid out and what it really would have been like because you get a great picture here that, like, these were medieval monks and this is what they did and... Just really their lives, yeah. And in the process of helping out and excavating here on the site, are there any of the particular jobs in archaeology that you enjoy most? Um, well, they're all really fun, but my favourites are probably troweling and sieving. Okay. Um, and troweling is when you you have things to brush off and um, you just take your trowel and you scrape the mud off everything. And it's really good because it reveals what you can, um, what you would see. And sieving is... Um, We've set up a little mechanism we call the sieve, um, and it's actually an old swing set, but um, <laughs> so we have a hose over it and um, you take your trial and you go through everything to see if you can find anything, and it's a really good way to find things, so okay. that's what makes that very exciting. And what kind of things have you found? What's been the most exciting thing? Um, well, last year I found a medieval button. That was oh, one of my best finds. Uh, and I found a chicken claw. <laughs> a chicken claw. <laughs> um, and just bones and bits of pottery. Um, and uh, This year I found a piece of flint that had been used, so that was fascinating and I also found a sheep tooth. <laughs> That's fantastic and yeah. is it giving you kind of uh, 
a much bigger interest in archaeology for yeah. when you go back to school and so on. Um, Is that yeah, it's, it's really like helped me with how much I know about history and I've learned a lot of things, but I've always liked history and mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, <laughs> I'd like to be an archaeologist when I'm older and it's just, it's really fun and it's taught me so much about it. So I'm joined now by John McCullen, uh, the landowner of the site here. And John, can you tell us a little bit about, because you're a historian yourself as well as a landowner, can you tell us a little bit about the story of the estate here? Because it's a beautiful grounds, it's a beautiful farm complex. That we well, uh, oddly enough, it isn't a big estate or anything like that. It's a whole mix and gatherum okay. of small bits of land and big bits of land. So. It's not like a classic estate where you'd have a thousand acres or something and it stays okay. in the one unit for thousands of years. Right. This is actually a 22-acre piece Okay. that my father bought in 1954 and he put it in my name. Right, okay. And that was, that's the back. So, like, it has some relationship to the other piece of land around it. Okay. And I suppose to get a unit, it goes back to when de Lacy got the land in the first place from the king because he pleased the king mm-hmm. and having got the land then he invited in monks mm-hmm. you know Cistercian monks and they were French monks because his origins were French that's right so that's the last time that it was a, a huge big section which went from here as far as Mornington at the sea okay it's really interesting and you know I suppose being in the Boyne Valley being a landowner in the Boyne Valley it's hard not to have a monument on your land of some description, I would say. It's such a That's historical. probably true. Well, most of the things yeah. relate to the bind. Yeah. You know, that the bind in some way or other brought people in yes. and they settled. That's it. And uh, we were quite surprised then when we eventually found the 2600 BC settlement there because that had never been spoken of. You know, the yeah. monks and the Cistercians had, yes, and they'd left bits of traces. Uh-huh. But the other characters who were there before them, we certainly didn't expect them. That's astonishing. What's it been like, I suppose, what's it like as a landowner to have an important historic or archaeological monument on your land? Is it, generally speaking, is it like a blessing or is it more of a a, a sort of nuisance? Um, No, I think I would feel it's a kind of a privilege. You know, I'd be happy enough, but like as it was, it was just a stone building in the middle of the field. Uh So we didn't know there was anything under the ground Uh other than those tunnels. And they wouldn't, you know, you could actually probably plough the field, we would have thought. Now, as it happens, it was never ploughed. Okay. In, in the ridges up there on the hill, which are mm-hmm. wheat ridges, which would suggest they were ploughed in the middle 1800s. Mm-hmm. But since that, certainly nothing would have happened. So okay. it, you graze it and you look at it and it had pigeon boxes in it. Okay. Which the guy with the big house had built. He'd adapted it into a pigeon house. Right. So there was pigeon boxes at both ends, brick things. Okay. And eventually the wood rotted and they fell down. But when I was a child, the pigeon boxes were the attractive thing and we called it the pigeon house. Okay. So um, when they fell down then, what's left is that oddly shaped stone building. So, and the clue, I suppose, then was that over your head there's a sandstone window. Mm. And that was the clue because we decided to clean the ivy off it and when we cleaned off the ivy the two bits of the window fell down because that's what was holding it up yes yeah. so i eventually put that back up and i suppose it's 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 a normal shaped window you might mm. say and then as we go on we discover 
we get expert fellas here and they say, well, if there's red sandstone in it, cut sandstone, it came from France. Wow. That the Cistercians cut their own window frames and door jams and brought them with them. And that after about 150 years, they discovered that limestone was far better to weather and they replaced them. So that ties you into that kind of space between 1200 and 1350, that the window must have gone up. So I suppose that's what made me feel that there's more there than just a square stone building. And is that that's this this kind of source of your curiosity? I suppose. I mean, how did this project come about? Curiosity. Yeah. Quite simply, and I suppose I had a feeling all along, like you mentioned earlier, about landowners having pieces of unexplained things on their land, mm-hmm. and some would rather no attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I felt um, if the thing is a genuine remnant, then in some way it needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. And the other issue was that at the time, Brussels and the European community were debating how do they reward farmers for minding the countryside. And that could be in grants to stop pollution going into rivers or streams or to grow certain kinds of crops. And my feeling was, and I suppose that's coming from the historian part, that if you had something valuable of a historical nature, that you were just as entitled to get some kind of reward from Europe for keeping it. Yes. As the guy who stopped the pollution from this early pit going into the river, mm-hmm. or the, the guy who grew a whole lot of bushes, you know, to yeah. satisfy the birds or the bees or the butterflies. Yes. No, so, I, you know, I, I and, and I suppose that was the logic I used. Yes. Uh, what, what would you like to see here, looking forward maybe five years from now? What do you see here? Do you see it reverting back to the pastoralland? Do you see maybe field schools or something happening with the archaeology or what would you like to see yourself? <clears throat> I, well, I, I, I have an open mind you know I wouldn't mind I do believe there's a lot more there mm, okay. you know and I would be interested in doing a geophysical study on the orchard the garden wall garden that's just to yeah, the yeah. north of us there because it's only five or six yards away from what we have yeah. I have a feeling that there may be more there so that would be the first step would be to do a geophysical survey on that and see does it show up anything um, if the thing turns into some kind of a museum in the middle of a field or some kind of a demonstration model or as Geraldine says if it's a, a major medieval barn and there's not too many of them around you know then I'm, I'm quite open to whatever happens and uh, I suppose it does provide you know if there had to be some kind of a tourist attraction here it's a help mm-hmm. to I suppose keep tourists happy yeah. And in keeping the tourists happy, there might be a few shillings falling off at the side for some of my descendants. <laughs> no, I understand. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, I suppose, what, what we'd hope would turn up. Yeah. Um, now, at the same time, that doesn't have to interfere an awful lot with grazing because cattle will graze. You know, and since we can't plough the field because of other reasons and stones and hollows and humps, yeah. then if we're going to have grass here, cattle will wander happily yes. around these things because they've done that for the last thousand years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how have you found the, the process of a dig going on uh, uh, on your land near your home? Like, has it been something, uh, have you been kind of tempted to get stuck in yourself? Uh, or uh, how, how have you found well, no, it? I, I'm quite happy to delegate, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I suppose. And But it has been great for the kids. Yeah. You know, in that the various grandchildren or whatever have got involved. And really enjoyed themselves. Yeah. And yeah. the create the atmosphere that the stouts create on the dig 
is, is quite extraordinary in that you have people there aged 80 and you have mm. people aged 12 mm. and the whole thing functions and they enjoy each other's company. Yeah. yeah and some way or other she makes it work. Yes. Yeah, uh, and yeah. that's, that's great. Yeah. It's an enjoyment to see that happening. So I'm now with John Sundland and he's the artist in residence here at Bolbeck. And John, you're an archaeologist yourself. And yeah. You've taken part in the excavation, mm -hmm. isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I've been digging and supervising people as well as practicing my arts practice, spinning a few plates, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose I know you, we, we worked together on a couple of projects, particularly at uh, Kilbegley. Yeah. Because you, you're a, a, some talent as a photographer mm -hmm. of artifacts and features and yeah. finds. And yeah. have you been practicing photography here as well? So. Yeah, I, I th I th there's two strands to the photography um, which kind of link into the drawing that I'm doing. Uh, one is I photograph four drawings and okay. I'm photographing pi pictures which I then convert into drawings, really looking at how people um, work with their hands on the site okay. and, um, and how they touch things. Very interesting. Can we talk about the artistic project? What, what's the name of it? And um, how does it work? This is um, Touching Time, is the project. And it started off before I started the project. I was looking into the theories around the haptic and how the sense of touch is really important in archaeology. And that rather, the, when we're working, we're turning the invisible into the visible. But we do that through touch. We actually find that the edges to features not by how we see them, but how we feel them through touch. That's really interesting, and it, it it is something that you can all, you know, when you're working away excavating on a site and you feel that change of soil, the colour mm. might look very, very similar. But yeah, you're right. There is. Yeah, you can almost important. do it blindfold in yes. some cases. Yeah, you're just working away, and sometimes it's even better to close your eyes and do it. Yeah. And go, oh yeah, that's where it feels a little bit different. And the, the archaeologist, the real skill of the archaeologist is to be able to yield to that process, to actually get really into it. And it, it kind of extends from your hands into the tools that you're using. So, so you then have a trowel which becomes your finger and, and you feel through the end of the trowel. And a mattock also could be something which you feel becomes part of you, part of your hand, as yes. you feel it scraping the surface or hitting into something and changing, you know, and then you recognise that. If you can recognise that and yield to it, that makes you a good archaeologist. That's very true. And how do you then, uh, what kind of artistic works come out of this process? Oh, well, I, I decided really that what I wanted to do was to, to mimic that in drawing processes. Mm -hmm. So I would take the contexts, the different soils on the site, and use them as pigment in drawings. I say drawings because I don't use paint. Okay. And one of the reasons I don't use paint is I want to make my arts practice more sustainable. Okay. So, so that I'm not having buying stuff, I'm making it. Um, so I take the soils and, for instance, I start a drawing by washing the, 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 the permatrace, which is the archaeological drafting paper which I use, with a wash of the subsoil, the natural base colour, which comes from grinding in a pestle and mortar the, the boulder clay. Mm -hmm. And then I'd start to use archaeological drawing techniques to actually work on top of that. Then I would take another context from an early feature on the site and wash that in areas onto the drawing and then draw on top of that again. And then do that again and again with different contexts. And I end up with this kind of palimpsest of, of work where the drawings start to disappear and then they reappear. And, and it's influenced also by 
I'm working outside in a kind of chaotic environment, so the, the images get influenced by the environment. They get wet and they dry, and there's differential drying. So then the photography comes in again, because these are not always going to be permanent works. I photograph them, and the photographs become the permanent works, and I get a sequence of a kind of time-lapse, which sees the development of the drawing and the impact on the, of the environment on that drawing as it gets wet and dries or gets impacted by heat as we were last yeah. week. It's a very interesting process because I'm, I'm kind of playing with the environment and it's playing with me in arts practice at the same time. Absolutely, that's a really interesting concept and I really like that using the actual pigments, using colours that are derived from the actual place. Uh, yeah, a sense of place on a paper. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really is very place specific uh, in that way. Um, I actually draw for on the site. I'll go and draw plan views, which I've been doing recently. And the amazing thing about it is I don't have to be accurate. So yeah. not all of it is what is there. But I kind <laughs> I kind of love just kind of taking these bits and actually yeah. composing with them on the thing and then layering them up as if it's kind of like the drawing itself is an archaeological. Uh, artifact or, or object in that respect. Yeah. I think that's a lovely idea. And yeah. uh, what did the impetus to to bring art into this particular site and this particular project come from? Um, I was here last year and I was talking to Matthew about what what possibilities there were, and we became quite fascinated with the idea of, of doing something, yeah. of having a go at something. Yeah. And and um, there were lots of ideas. There. there an archaeological site is an extremely rich vein for an artist to work with. There's all kinds of things. So I think my approach really was one much more very intuitive rather than too much over-planning in the first place. And I felt that I wanted to really work with drawing rather than the photography, but the photography works with it and plays into it and, and has this kind of uh, relationship with it. But, but I just really wanted to get that direct haptic the touch of the drawing process and the touch of the site and have that mirrored in in the in the work so it's so i'm kind of much more interested in processes processes of archaeology processes of art mm. rather than thinking about the cistercians and imagining what they would have been like yes which okay. is an imagination rather yeah. than you always have to fill the gaps no, uh, and i tend to tend to find myself feeling that the processes we undergo are, are beautiful they're an experience which is becoming much more rare, like everything's becoming automated, so you don't get your hands in the soil very much. So I'm here now with Brona, Misha, Catherine and Molly, and you've been working away on kind of an interesting little aspect of the site that's not quite to do with the Cistercians, is that right? Catherine, uh, yes. what's that with you? We've found a Neolithic uh, socket for a tomb uh, underneath where they had the kiln. So it's very yeah. interesting. has been saying since last year they found some grey wacky and since then she's kind of suspected there might be uh, the remains of a tomb. Do you think mm. it's more of like the, the negative remains rather than a tomb itself? There's also been a fair amount of flint in the area. Just yesterday, Alex found uh, a really cool looking uh, flint core that had looked like it had been worked. Um, lots of other bits of baby flint scrapers and uh, Catherine found like quartz pebbles uh, in the fill of the, the tomb socket. So wow. There was actually a polished stone axe found on the side as well, which is 
really, really pretty. It's around 10 centimeters long. The DX uh, would be probably Neolithic because it yeah. has the pointed butt. Okay. So that's uh, usually a sign of the Neolithic uh, stone axis and it's polished, it's really pretty. Do you know the Boyne Valley is just a little bit obscene with the amount of Neolithic stuff. <laughs> it's like everybody 5,000 years ago all lived in this one little river valley. So a couple of you have been here, this is your first season, is that right? That's yes, yourself, Misha. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And me too, but uh, Misha's been on a few digs before, so this is my yeah. first yeah. so. Yeah. No, Misha worked with me up at the Hellfire Club back in 2016. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was so amazing. Old veteran with the Olympic sites. That was my enough. first excavation, was and I'm really proud of it, and oh, I love to think about it. Yeah. And, but for yourself, Catherine, and brother, this is your second season, is it? Yes, um, yeah. I'm, I heard about it actually through my uh, my university DCU, um, okay. uh, because Matthew was my lecturer. So mm -hmm. um, I came down last year, um, and I've uh, I, I do not regret it one bit. It's been absolutely fantastic, wonderful experience. Because we don't study yeah. archaeology in DCU, so mm -hmm. it was a great opportunity to get in to try something new and to to get a good solid grounding of what it's like. That's fantastic. And for yourself, Catherine, you know, there's such a variety of people working on this site yeah. from all kind of age groups and backgrounds and so on. Is that something that you've kind of enjoyed working with different yeah, types of people? Yeah, it's really good. Like there's the young crowd that have, you can joke with anyone, no matter yeah. the age. And you're, there's no discrimination with knowledge or anything. It's not like, oh, you don't study this in college. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Everyone's interpretations are, are really welcome yeah. and they're always asking if, if, if you think of a particular thing or if you found something, your, your questions and interpretations are always welcome. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, like a big community here. It's really nice. Or big. Oh. Family. Yeah. So now I'm joined by Daniel Cummins from UCD and Elizabeth Gardner and we're going to have a little bit of a chat about your experiences here. Start with yourself, Daniel. Uh, it's not your first archaeological excavation, is it? You've, no, you've I uh, previously worked with the National Irish Heritage Park on the Carrick Project. That was where we were digging up um, a previous Norman settlement on the park grounds. So you're an old hand with this kind of 12th, 13th century yeah, kind no, of history. Yeah, it's fantastic. And how have you found the process here at Bobek during the excavation? Uh, quite good. We were fortunate enough with the weather, so things have yeah. been smooth so far. Yeah. It was only in the last week or so that things have gotten a bit more rough. Yeah. Uh, overall, I think we've made good progress on yeah. covering the uh, tide barn. Um, what's it been like to work with kind of people from different kind of backgrounds and different kind of age groups and different interest groups? Uh, it's been quite good in particular with archaeology. Uh, there's kind of more of a sense of uh, camaraderie between the different groups rather than other different academic fields. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, well, turn it to yourself, Elizabeth, you don't sound like a local. <laughs> that is certainly true. I'm from Chicago and oh, I went to school at Notre Dame in Indiana in oh. the U.S. Fantastic. And you studied engineering, is that right? Yes, uh-huh. I uh, civil engineering in particular, so I am all read up on structures and things like mm -hmm. that, not necessarily medieval ones. Mm. But I did do a semester at UCD, okay. and that's how I got into archaeology a little bit and picked up an anthropology minor. Okay, very interesting. And what kind of drew you to archaeology from engineering? What, what was the... Uh, impetus or the curiosity that you were following? Was there a particular type of site or story that you found particularly interesting? Uh, yeah, I guess it came from a, a position of not knowing much about it, maybe. Mm -hmm. It just, I liked history, I liked okay. 
uh, the uh, the excitement of finding new things like this and discovering mm-hmm. uh, more about people who lived in the past. It's it's just I think such an important part of being human is really um, connecting with like the very 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 long history that that we all share, which is not related to engineering at all. Yeah. But I mean, kind of. It it can be, and that's what I'm finding here. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it came from a place of that combined with maybe wanting to be Indiana Jones. To yeah, well, sure, we've all got a bit of that. <laughs> we, we all have to have <laughs> you know, a we, little we bit. All want to be <laughs> um, but no, I think it's, you know, this is the interesting site for an engineer in a way as well, because like the Cistercians were kind of masters at managing landscapes, moving water around and, and, and things. And it, has there been anything that you found kind of uh, particularly interesting about the way that the, this Grange would have functioned? From an engineering point of view rather than a kind of historical point of view. Yeah, from an engineering point of view, I think it's really eye-opening because, uh, you know, it's very old. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say that it's, like, you would think it'd be less sophisticated or... that. Mm-hmm. But they're just solving the exact same structural problems and uh, water problems that we do now. Yeah. And and so it's it's a puzzle figuring out, like, their, their thinking behind the choices that they made when when constructing things like this. So yeah, I heard you've been doing some 3D illustration at the site. Yes, uh, it's not any sort of uh, drafting. I do know how to, I, I am trained in AutoCAD, but yeah. I don't have that here with me now. Mm-hmm. But uh, as an illustrator, what I can do is just do perspective drawing. So it's not necessarily okay. 3D modeling, but it's just drawing, uh, using photographs of the site yes. and then kind of adding on to them for uh, what, reimagining what it could have looked like in its heyday which isn't something that i would like look at and immediately know instead it's kind of these past two weeks have kind of been like uh an accumulating uh accumulation of lots of different expert opinions which Mm -hmm. has been so exciting and really an awesome process every every day it feels like new experts are coming through here to pop in and take a look Mm -hmm. and i'm there like <laughs> running behind them being like, wait, what do you think about this buttress over here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? So every, every day the drawings get tweaked a little better. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's, it's been such like an amazing process. So I'm joined now by Anthony Murphy of Mythical Island. And Anthony, you've been, you're a fur local, is that right? You, yeah. You live pretty I'm close. Born and bred in Drahari, yeah. Yeah. Lived there all my life, yeah. Fantastic. And, you know, your role in the site has been uh, photography and particularly drone photography. Is that the kind of work you've been doing? Yeah, well, actually, what, what happened is my, my daughter, Tara, is um, volunteering oh, this really? year. And so I have to come here every day anyway. Yes. And so I figured from day one, I'd bring the drone and fly and take photographs. But it, something that struck me, an idea that came to me on day one was, why don't you take vertical overhead shot of the site yeah. and then take one every day? Because you're going to be here every day and put it together as a time lapse at the end and watch the progression of the dig. So that's basically, I'm taking the same photograph every day. Now it's not the only picture that I'm taking. I'm trying to, you know, record some of the the atmosphere of the site mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. but this same position every day to see the progression. And actually, it's amazing how much work has been done in in, in a month. You know, absolutely. I it, I mean, it's an incredible site. There's so much history around this part of the country, though, isn't there? It's well, what I really. I I know that Matt and Geraldine are here for the Cistercian stuff, right? I know yeah. that the medieval stuff. Yeah. But I got very excited last year when they said we have what looks like a a Neolithic pit circle. (laughs) And then they came back with the dates, late Neolithic. And 
So what that's telling me is that you don't have to be in the core area of Brunavonia. You know, this is some probably about eight or ten kilometres from Newgrange, I'd say, as the crow flies. But it's all about, I think, the quality of the land. Yes, you know, yeah, it's yeah, this, yeah. this is an area that's very, very rich and productive land. Uh, it's, uh, I always find that in this part of the country, that the depth of time, sometimes it, it gets almost, it gives you vertigo when you think about it sometimes. It really, yeah. It's astonishing stuff. And of course, you know, I suppose you, you're well known at this stage for drone uh, discoveries. And how far away was that monument from where we are right now? That wouldn't be too far, would it? I would say, you see, you can see the cement factory from here and, and it's just another couple of miles over to Douth from there. Yeah. So it's probably, I, I, I still talk in terms of miles, yeah. I'd say it's probably about five, six, six miles, seven miles. So about probably 10, 11, 12 kilometres as the crow flies. Incredible. You and know? that was the discovery of, as it's known now, Drone Henge. Drone, yeah. 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 It was actually the media who uh, came up with that title. Yeah. Um, I, perhaps they thought they were being clever. Um, yeah, that 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 was my first, and to this date, my most significant discovery. It's like p people say to you, "How many things have you discovered with your drone?" Actually, not that many. A lot of my discoveries have been using the imagery taken during the drought. Yes. You uploaded to Apple Maps and Google Google Earth afterwards. Yes. You know, yeah. there was a lot of stuff visible that I hadn't seen at the time. Um, so I don't think I'll ever top it, put it that way. I well, don't think I mean, there's a hinge here, you no, know? No, no, no. But who I knows? Mean, who, who knows? I mean, it's pretty spectacular. I think what it shows as well is that if you've got an open eye and an interest in what to look for, I, I think it's remarkable what you can find, especially in such a historic landscape. As yeah, well, I think, but drones, I mean, they have absolutely proven their worth in uh, archaeological terms, no, you know? absolutely. You know, I, I was only chatting to... Um, people about this that I still remember the days when you'd send the tallest lad up on top of a stepladder in a wheelbarrow <laughs> to try to get an overview and here you are every day coming down here taking vertical shots. Yeah and the thing is it's it's an inexpensive technology too I mean yeah. you know a generation ago if you wanted to do that kind of aerial mapping you needed to hire a helicopter and that Absolutely. was tremendously expensive no, you're paying absolutely. by the hour with a drone I mean these are hobby drones but they're they're capable of taking high quality image yeah. imagery. Yeah. And I know there are drone operators who are into photogrammetry and infrared and all that stuff. Now, I haven't gone to that level yet. All of my stuff is just the, the usual visual photography, but it's enough. The other thing is that in Ireland, because we've so many crops and because lately we seem to be having these dry spells. I mean, we, we had a very dry spell in the spring of this year and we've had recently had a heat wave we had a spring drought in 2020 and then of course we had the summer drought in 2018 yes. so with the regularity of drought periods you know it, it, the, the drones are i think going to come into the fore now in terms of making discoveries and mapping and charting uh, previously discovered monuments you know So uh, I'm down inside the stone tower now with Craig. Um, I haven't really, I don't think, been in a medieval latrine before. I don't think many people would be excited to be. <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> excited to be in it. Um, so Craig's just going to show us some of the key features of this place. Well, as you can see, Neil, this is a very complicated little building and, and it being the only thing that's still existing above ground, it's... Um, it's quite remarkable that, in, in fact, as you say, 
it's what's commonly called here on site the service tower, but in fact mm -hmm. it's the la latrine. Uh -huh. And so where we're standing right now would have been at the base of the night stairs coming down here from the main building here. Oh, okay, now okay. This would have been blocked up. Uh, uh -huh. uh, whenever, probably in the 1700s sometime, then there would have been steps coming down here to presumably a, a wooden floor. And here was the, the business end of the building. The business end indeed. And we have three um, sockets in the wall. Yes. So, uh, for, the, for the seats themselves, I reckon we have room for a three-seater. And this would have been the ground level here. So this is just the right layer level, rather, for, for a lamp yeah. or, or brushes or whatever water you needed. Yeah. But you can see that it, it's, it's quite complicated. Where you see this yeah. mold on the, on the plaster, the existing plaster here, this is where we started. This was the, this was the level of the floor when we first came in. Um, what sorts of things did you find in it? In, 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 the, in the latrine itself, uh, oh, out here we found a, a wonderful huge iron key. Oh, wow. Thought, well, we've got the key to the tower. It's yeah. a wonderful day. We well, didn't find any coins. There's lots of little bits of, uh, of pottery from various times, mostly late, and that would have been part of the rubble. Yeah. But down in here in the latrine itself, I got a, a, a lovely churn lid and uh, a long slot, uh, little bits of wood. Uh, Steve Davis mm -hmm. took some sampling from the, from the, from the cutting. Oh, very good. Uh, yeah. So we will know eventually what, what was in it. What kind of insects yeah, and in, things like that. Especially yeah. insects and, and seeds and things. Yes. Uh, but um, unfortunately I didn't find anything that had fallen out of any brother's, uh, you know, uh, when, he was, when he was in here visiting. He didn't, he didn't uh, leave anything behind in the form of coins or anything Oh, like I that. thought you meant something else for me. No, I was thinking <laughs> treasure. Yeah. So my name is Penny Johnston and I'm an environmental archaeologist and I specialise in um, looking at the remains of plants that are found in archaeological sites. Perfect, Penny. And like, it's not, I suppose, on every excavation that you'd have an environmental archaeologist on hand here. This That's is brilliant. actually, this is the only excavation that I've worked on as an environmental, sort of on site all the time as an environmental archaeologist and it's certainly quite rare, yeah. but it's a brilliant opportunity for me to just sample all the deposits that I think need to be sampled and for people to come and ask me about environmental archaeology as well. So. Uh, absolutely, because it's having that you know exactly where it comes from then. It's not that you're getting these kind of yeah. big pile of bags all of a yes, sudden at the end absolutely. of the Absolutely. I'm like, I haven't written this material up, but I'm really looking forward to writing it up because I have such an intimate knowledge of all the deposits and all the samples. And that's so rare because a lot yeah. of the time you're referring back to site plans because you don't know the site, no, you know, I, when you're writing it up and that kind of thing. So Absolutely. And in terms of the kind of environmental evidence here, um, what kind of things have people been finding or how have you been retrieving that evidence? Is it through sieving and things yes. like that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the really interesting things about this site is that we have plant remains tend to be preserved either in waterlogged deposits or in by charring by from burning. So at this site, it's a rural site, um, but we have both types of preservation here and that's quite rare. Um, so for the charred material, I use a flotation tank that 
belongs mm -hmm. to the Discovery Programme. So thank you, Discovery Programme, for that. <laughs> um, so charred material floats and um, using a flotation tank is a really, it, it's lighter than water and it's a really effective and efficient way of retrieving the plant remains from the deposits. Okay. And then just wet sieving for the waterlogged material, which is just putting it through um, fine geological sieves using water to um, disaggregate all of the, the soil and the silt. So. And in that process, what sort of things have you discovered? Um, so this is a high medieval kind of Anglo-Norman site and the cash crop for Anglo-Normans was bread wheat. So there is bread wheat, like charred bread wheat all over the site. Wow. So, yeah, okay. lots and lots of charred bread wheat. Mm -hmm. There's also, well, one of the things that we think that the Anglo-Normans introduced or developed in Ireland in terms of arable agriculture is crop rotation. So there's evidence for that in terms of there are peas and sometimes the odd few beans as well, which would have been introduced as kind of part of the crop rotation system. Mm -hmm. um, there's some weeds, uh, not so many arable weeds, and um, but one of the really interesting things then is looking at um, the waterlogged material was from a latrine, so it was different to the kind of the the crop production. It was what they'd actually eaten. Yes. <laughs> the remains from yeah. what they'd actually eaten, okay. and there were lots of fruit. Yes. in those deposits so i mean that's it i mean i suppose you know the idea that a latrine gives you you know a toilet essentially gives you the most valuable evidence direct I suppose. evidence of diet yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and were what the monks eating here markedly different to what the contemporaries outside would have been eating in the rest of ireland yes um yeah. I suppose not so different. I'll give you kind of an idea of the kind of stuff that we've been finding. It's some of it is stuff that you would find on urban sites from around the same period. There's things like um, grapes and fig. They'd be quite high class now sites that you'd oh, be finding okay. this kind okay. of material on this. So there's grapes and figs, which we think yeah. were probably are probably imported as dried fruit, uh -huh. which would be quite well to do yes and there's all sorts of other fruits that would have been native fruits as well there's cherries and plums which they probably were growing in the area around mm -hmm. here which is lovely um and I'm trying to think what else there's kind of things like berries raspberries blackberries that kind of thing as well a lot of these kind of berries and fruits you find in these deposits because they preserve well in those deposits so and that's really interesting and, and you say as well with the the bread wheat for example that um, we're getting a bit of a sense of how they use the land yes. as well. So the Cistercians, I suppose, and, and Matthew and Geraldine were talking about that before, were absolutely masters at kind of agriculturalists in a way. And does the environmental evidence support that? Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah, it, it certainly does. I mean, this kind of period was a period of colonisation in Ireland. One of the things they came here for was additional land to convert into arable land. Um, Mm -hmm. arable um, farmland so and then they were they seem to have been exporting it from this site out of Ireland you know again but one of the things that they would have been doing that for was to extend their fields of bread wheat yeah that's fantastic and so what happens now today's the last day of the excavation what yeah. happens you 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 know it's a big difference isn't it because normally you're trying to load up a van with loads of bags of soil yeah. ready to go to the specialists yeah. but you've cut that corner which is amazing yes. i only have a little box to bring home in my well it's not that little but it's a box yes, to bring home in my car rather than a van load yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah 
That's amazing. Yeah, and so I've actually done quite a lot. I have a microscope here in the fine set as well. So oh. I've done quite a lot of the preliminary sorting of the material as well. And it's great when, like, it's great nor in normal times to be able to have people, members of the public come in and look down them. I love showing, like, yeah. that sort of stuff to kids yeah. and that kind of thing. You know, it's great because yeah. see the reaction that they get to see that material down the microscope is wonderful as well. I'm joined by Katrina Devana, historical researcher and archaeologist. And Katrina, you've been looking after the artifactual assemblage, all the finds that have been coming into you. Is that right? I have for the last three years since the excavation started in 2019. Uh, is it how, in terms of the amount and the variety of artifacts coming through here, what we've just kind of had a look at some of the pottery. What other sorts of artifacts have we had? There's flint. Some of it worked, and some. It's just raw flint yeah. that has not been worked. Um, um, in terms of ceramics, th there are roof tiles and floor tiles. There are also stone floor tiles. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, You're giving you a really good sense of what the building might have looked like, I suppose, by the time it was in use. There are some ornate tiles that I haven't catalogued yet. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you may have seen those before on site. Yeah, oh, there's some incredible stuff there. And in terms of, uh, there's been a couple of coins as well, is that right? Yeah, there's Ned for the third half growth, according fantastic. to Kieran Campbell. And the process of managing all the artefacts coming in, it's such an important part of it to catalogue and, and, and to record everything. What's the process like? Is it at the end of every day that a new batch of things comes along to you? Or how at does the it end work? of every day there's a new batch that has to be washed. Mm -hmm. and as far as possible dried. My name is Roseanne Meenan. I work on pottery from excavations and I've been doing that now for the last, oh gosh, 30 years. Wow. And how does the pottery assemblage from Bobek over the last three seasons kind of stand up I suppose to other sites of a similar Yeah, no it period. stands up very well there's a, there's a nice selection of material here and what's really nice is that we have um, pottery that we know came from the kilns in Drogheda wow. um, the, kilns, the Drogheda kilns were excavated back I think it was 2004 by Caroline Powell okay. and ADS mm -hmm. and uh, she found over 600,000 shards of pottery oh wow and quite a number of kilns i don't actually have that figure just to hand at the moment in my head but like there were many kilns so that's a, a huge reference collection huge then. yeah huge absolutely fantastic and the type of pottery that we've been finding here what sort of purposes was it used for i mean was it different types of activities represented well it's the usual um it's the usual functions that you get associated with uh, medieval pottery from other sites. The jug is probably the commonest okay. um, form, but we have cooking vessels here. We've got a very nice pipkin mm -hmm. um, there uh, over the last couple of weeks that we know was made in Drada. And I know that there were, when they went through the, the pottery from the excavations, they found pipkins. Okay. Other cooking vessels, yeah. Very interesting. And as well as stuff from local pottery, I suppose we've got some fancier imported. We do. We do. We have very nice pottery from France, from the Saint-Orge area. 
Wow, okay. Uh, the first year that we were here, we found a good portion of a, a jug. Mm -hmm. And this year, we have a portion of what I think are um, a, from a mortar, okay. a Saint-Ange mortar, which could date to, say, the 13th century or possibly even up to the 16th century. Okay. Quite. Um, this particular one example is is simpler than some of the other examples that you see illustrated. That's very interesting, Rosanna. And what does the the pottery tell us about the way that the monks lived their lives here? Were they particularly wealthy in comparison with the contemporaries, or were they fairly common sort of uh, in I, relation I to other? I think the sites? I think the pottery was. Gosh, that's a hard one. Um, I don't think probably that there's more or less or any more exotic types here than there than there uh, are on on other excavations. Um, the Saint-Ange vessels we know came in with the wine. Okay. But we also have jugs here, so assume that they used the, the locally made jugs for wine and probably for, for serving water as well. Yes. Uh, so I'm joined now by Grace McCullen. And Grace, uh, you know, firstly, thank you for inviting me along here. It's been a fantastic day talking to everybody. How has this process been for you um, from a kind of family point of view? Like, is that site... Do you remember that site kind of growing up? Did that loom in your imagination as a child or anything like that? Oh, well, uh, thank you, Neil, for coming. We've been just delighted to have you here today. And I think you've gotten a sense of how special an environment it is and how lucky and blessed we are to live where we do. Mm -hmm. And I suppose growing up here, um, over the last number of decades, it has been remarkable. Um, we used to, when we were growing up, um, call what's now called the gate tower, the castle. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine I was one of six mm -hmm. uh, growing up on a farm and the farm was the magnet for all our friends who lived locally and we go play in the castle or go down and make our own forts in the ditches or, you know, fish for pinkies in the streams mm -hmm. that are there. So it was that kind of idyllic childhood. Yeah, and unbeknownst to yourself you assimilate the information as you grow up mm -hmm. and I suppose with parents like John and Anne a nurse and a farmer um, very practical approach you know to making the land work and yet appreciating the culture and the environment and the role that history and heritage has and my dad John is such a keen historian and mm. um, he's devoting all his time to that now um, and it's just wonderful that we can keep the story alive mm -hmm. and it seems that it's been genetically um, fed into us you know across the McCullen generations that that story is continuing to be told yeah. um, so I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Seriously, we've we've just had an amazing experience. You know, this is the very end of the third season, so it's going to be a bit quiet tomorrow. I guess <laughs> you've not got a swarm of archaeologists. Well, I think um, we shall have to reward everybody for their last four weeks, and thankfully we'll sit down now in true spirit of the mail mm -hmm. and break bread and have a little couple of scoops. Uh, it's been remarkable, and I think the four-week um, 
period focuses the mind mm -hmm. and what we've achieved is is just incredible we've been blessed under the stewardships of of the stouts uh, along with the enthusiasm and knowledge and um, connectivity of my dad mm -hmm. and all the volunteers mm -hmm. and the specialists it's really been an extraordinary um unique piece to be part of mm -hmm. and i think actually this is only the start yeah. it's not the end and so while we have finished phase one of excavations at Beaubec, i think what we have uncovered will certainly give the appetite now to discover actually what's there in phase two yeah yeah absolutely and moving uh, into kind of phase two and such you, you mentioned that it's conservation works uh, that's funded through the community monuments mm. fund and um what would the site look like do you think uh, or what would you like to see looking ahead maybe five years ten years down the line if, if you know money was no object and provisions were granted <laughs> as a, what would you like to see for the future of bobek yeah well for the future um i think that the next three years and the discovery that's still yet to behold us um if we can achieve some additional discovery around um, contouring or landscaping mm. or assessing what lies beneath uh, the broader extent of the site. So at the moment we've we've focused on the Grange. We still have to discover what's in the walled gardens. Mm -hmm. We still have to discover is there a Neolithic existence that is there? Mm. What may what stories may be told from that? Mm -hmm. So we actually we can piece up the the very um, development of human behaviour over that time frame. Yes. And if I was to look into the future as to um, what Bobek holds, I think it's, it's the perfect um, challenge and opportunity for um, landowners and farmers and uh, academics and archaeologists and historian and cultural um, with the guidance of the National Monument Service um, to develop what's right for the site. Yeah. And I think we're open to whatever that looks like. Yeah. Um, so it does, it, the biggest challenge will be, uh, as you, well you're aware, to get the funding to enable us to take that next step. Yeah. And if money was no object, oh my goodness, I'd love when you're here again doing our phase two podcast <laughs> um, that we might have um, walled gardens reimagined. We may mm. be able to see the Grange. We may understand more about the living circumstances of the Cistercians, mm -hmm. but also of the Neolithic people before them and the Pearsons beyond them, mm -hmm. um, let alone what stamp the McCullens may leave on the landscape. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. And I'd just like to thank Geraldine and Matthew and all the excavation team, and most especially the McCullen family, for the warm hospitality and for taking the time to talk to me on the very last day of the excavation. As ever, you can find more information and links in the show notes on our website at abataheritage.ie. And if you have a spare moment, please do consider leaving a review for us on your podcast app. It really helps us to be discovered. If you'd like to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland, you might enjoy our new membership service called Tour. We have lots of fantastic heritage sites and hidden gems to visit, along with itineraries for road trips and online courses like our Introduction to Irish Archaeology course. 
For more information, please visit our website at abataheritage.ie forward slash Tua. T-U-A-T-H-A. Thanks very much, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in future episodes of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Thank you.